Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, and a very good morning. It's uh, well, it's a humid morning. I'll sure say that uh, here in South Texas. That's what happens when we get these good little rain showers that move through in the late afternoons. Has happened yesterday. It's been happening a great deal. It's just the most, truly one of the most unusual summers I remember. Just uh, humidity's certainly been uh, way up around a hundred percent most of the most of the summer, but at least temperature hadn't gotten there. And uh, morning's still very nice. Great time to get out. Out and get some things done and as uh, long as you're drinking plenty of fluids and wearing a big hat you can get all kinds of things done throughout the day and that's what we're here to talk about uh, this Sunday and every Sunday from 8 till 11. Dr. Kirby will be in at 11 of course then we'll talk about your pet's health. But right now it's time to talk gardening. Looks like Kim and Bernie and Peggy are my first three callers and why don't we just get started. Good morning Kim. Good morning. Um, Good morning. I have a couple of questions. One, I just noticed yesterday that there's all this sticky uh, stuff all over my citrus. I'm like thinking it's aphids. And um, I just went out and looked a little further. And then it's like, is it um, mealybugs because they're white? But now I just Googled it and it pops up cottony cushion scale. Looks no, exactly. cottony, cottony cushion, no, cottony cushion scale doesn't get on citrus. Um, there are various forms of scale that do, but cottony cushion scale is, uh, it would be very rare on a citrus tree. The good news is that everything you've described, uh, you can take a little spinosad soap or straight spinosad. I like the, the combination they call spinosad soap, and that will control all of those, uh, all those insects at one time. Now, if you've got the, that kind of black mold that grows on the excrement, the scale and aphids leave behind, uh, it just takes a little water, a little soap and water, whatever, to get that off. But uh, get a little bit of these spinosad soap and just give them a good thorough spraying, and that'll take care of the mealybugs. It'll take care of any scale you might have. It'll take care of the aphids. Uh, it's also the only thing going that takes care of all three life stages of a white fly, which is also fairly common on citrus. So um, it's it's a bit of an issue, but there's a lot of that out there, but it's very easy to control with a very, very safe product. Okay. Yeah, it looks just like this picture of the cottony cushion scale for the. Oh, I know. You just can't trust anything you see on the internet. Cottony cushion scale is similar, but uh, we see that occasionally on Pittosporum. We see it on uh, some of the hollies periodically, but I don't think I've ever seen cottony cushion scale on, uh, you know, on citrus trees. But it also, and, and there's more than one kind of mealybug. Most common one is called the long tail mealybug, but. Uh, uh, mealybug I see with some regularity on citrus, but I don't think I've ever seen cottony cushion scale. Uh, if you had a little microscope, you could stick it under and you'd see some differences. But even if it was, the uh, the uh, spinosad soap would take care of it. Okay, great. Um, also, um, 
so for um, the fungus mats, and can I just, is it like if I put those mosquito bits in some water and soak mm-hmm. it in there, can if I wanted to spray it, could I drain it off, or is it actually the granules that? No, that it's have it's. The, yeah, no, it's it's the liquid. The It's a bacteria, of course, far too small to see with just your eye, but it's called BTI, Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis, and that's what kills the larvae of the fungus gnat. Now, it does not kill the adults, so you will still see fungus gnats for a few days, but uh, fungus gnats only live a few days. This is going to kill all their larvae, so there won't be any new adults to take the place. So, yeah, just soak the uh, mosquito bits or mosquito dunks uh, in water. I usually do it overnight but you know a few hours is enough use that water to water your plants thoroughly and you should totally control the fungus gnats and how long will that last if i like make a bunch of it would it last for several days the water i i I would always make it fresh our san antonio water has so much crud in it now if you mixed it with deionized or distilled water it would certainly have a little bit longer life but you know just make up as much or as little as you need typically one watering with it will do it if you want to be on the safe side uh just you know use it today and then next time your uh, your plants where you suspect they're coming from need watering do it a second time and i've never seen it require a third time so uh, not okay. to say that somewhere down the road, you know, some more might not fly in from somewhere else. But I also have to tell you that fungus gnats are frequently a sign that you're watering a little too often. You're keeping your plants a little bit too wet. And uh, it may, may, may need, mean that you need to, you still need to water very thoroughly when you water. But you may need to let them dry out a little bit more between waterings. And uh, if you do that, you probably won't ever have them appear in the first place. Yeah, this was on um, seeds that I was trying to start. Sure. um, And my last question is, I had planted some blue bread poppies because I wanted to save the seed for baking. And they were doing great. I planted them in the fall, and I managed to protect them through the freeze. Good for you. Great. Yeah. And... And then when we got all that rain, like Mm -hmm. they would bloom, but then like they would almost like the buds wouldn't get dried out. They just, they looked terrible. Do you think? And and so in the future, should I plant them in the fall or should I wait to the spring? Fall is usually the best time for planting poppies. Hopefully, we will not see another February like we had this year for a long time. I have to tell you, though, anything with blue or purple flowers, especially with poppies, you're never going to get the color uh, that you would see in a cooler part of the country or that I'm sure is represented on the seed pack. The reason being that those pigments in the flowers are something we call anthocyanins, and they develop best when the weather's pretty cool. I mean, we brought seed back from purple poppies in California and up and down the coast. It never comes out purple. We found one time a uh, 
uh, planting of uh, indigo spire salvia and thought, man, this is the darkest blue salvia we have ever seen. We managed to get some cuttings and brought them back, rooted them, planted them. They were just ordinary old uh, uh, indigo spire salvia. It's just that the weather up there and the coolness, those uh, blue and purple pigments get so intense. So good luck with trying to grow blue or purple poppies, but we've tried it several times and have never really been successful. So don't feel like uh, it's something that you're doing wrong. They just don't like South Texas heat. Now, California poppies and, uh, you know, common red poppies and uh, even uh, the big old uh, kind of uh, lacy, frilly pink ones, they all do fine. And uh, But but those purple and, uh, and blue colors are really, really hard to achieve. Of course, crazy as the weather is, who's to say we might not have a cold spell and they do real well some year? But don't blame yourself. Uh, nobody really grows them well unless they're growing them in a refrigerated terrarium, which is certainly not not practical. So you think maybe it wasn't the? I mean, they they. It seemed like with all the rain, they started mildewing, and they just yeah. didn't like it. Because I would, I you know, it's not the color; it was the fact that that was the kind of poppy seed sure. that you use in baking. Right. Which I was trying to save, and actually, the color was quite beautiful. It was like a purpley, very um, good color. But um, but they just didn't really produce the seed. They started like mildewing before the seed heads really got dried out. That was my sure. Problem. Well, and again, that probably may have been the heat as much as the rain. It was probably, in truth, a combination of the two. But do this if you plant them again. Um, as they flower, as they start to make seed, start spraying, uh, you know, weekly or every other week with a uh, garlic spray of some sort. Garlic is, is an amazing material. It, uh, it stimulates so many beneficial fungi on plant surfaces, leaves and flowers and things like that, that there is simply no room for the mildew or in the case of roses black spot and things like that to even get started uh it will work to control it a bit but uh regular spraying with garlic will almost 100 percent prevent mildew and most other fungus problems from developing now i have to tell you one thing we found in oregon last week was a new product based on peppermint oil that they claim controls mildew instantly with one spraying so we're going to try that out and see how it works but in the meantime anything that you really want to stop the mildew on you know start in advance with uh every couple of weeks spray them down with a garlic solution and you probably won't ever have that mildew problem again what would be the i i made some garlic um from howard's recipe Mm -hmm. on his website for for mosquito and i'm using it for mosquito sure but what would it be uh what kind of Probably about, probably maybe a couple, about a tablespoon to a gallon. Okay. And if you get tired of making it yourself, you can buy, uh, there's a company called Garlic Research Labs. They produce a product that's called Mosquito Barrier and another one called Garlic Barrier, both of which are just garlic juice. And for me, it's a whole lot easier to pour it out of a bottle where somebody else has already gone to the trouble of extracting it. So you're doing a good thing, And uh, uh, but uh, if you get tired of making it yourself, uh, there is an option. It's pretty low cost, and uh, it keeps a long time. They put it in quart bottles, and uh, uh, that's what I use. Okay, great. All right, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Kim. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye.
All right, uh, let's go ahead and talk to Bernie. Good morning, Bernie. Hey, excuse me. Good morning, Bob. From, Good morning. From uh, Grizzly Canyon Lake. <laughs> and this has been an unusual summer. I'll tell you, it, uh, the all these frequent little drizzly light rains we've had has have really kept me busy putting uh, a uh, putting some uh, spray on my creek myrtles to, to keep Boy, the that's the from eating them all. I use the uh, liquid fence, and which seems yeah. to work, but you know, <laughs> it sure does stink. But it does work. It does. Uh, regarding the creek myrtles, uh, I planted three of them that I got at Phoenix uh, this spring, and uh, I I did a little, tried to do anyway, a little Malcolm Beck experiment. I On one of them, I cut the majority of the small limbs, or, or uh-huh. you know, the, the little trunks coming up, and uh, I did it on one of the three, and I don't know if it's a coincidence or what, but on that particular one, it has bloomed more and better than the other two. Is is there any relationship there? Are all three of your crepe myrtles the same variety, or are they three different they varieties? No, no. They're, they're all the all same, same variety? It, yeah, it may have stimulated a little bit of early blooming, which, you know, is, is both good and bad in that, uh, the first year of plants in the ground, I'd rather see it grow than have it put on blooms because it just doesn't do both of them very well. It's kind of got a one track mind, so to speak. It's either going to bloom or it's going to grow. And when we start, you know, reducing its ability to grow by taking away all those little suckers, uh, which is probably a good thing to do, it many times may cause it to start blooming earlier but if all three of those plants have exactly the same genetics um then chances are your pruning did influence it uh did you know stimulate it to start blooming a little bit earlier but uh keep in mind um uh, with your with your crepe myrtles, you can make a tree out of them instead of a bush if you like. But I would always leave two or three trunks. I've just seen too many single trunk crepe myrtle trees that just snapped and broke in a wind. And you guys are known for having a little bit of wind up there. But um, sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly fine to decide early which way you're going to grow them and, you know, prune them accordingly. Now, the trunks that you have growing up do leave the little side limbs on those until the trunks are well established because every leaf is acting like a little sugar factory. We do it with the shade trees, we do it with fruit trees, we do it with everything. For the first two or three years, I'll go through like once a year and cut those, those little side limbs back to keep them from ever making major limbs, but having those leaves up and down the trunk makes those uh, makes the trunk grow and fill out and get stronger much more rapidly. So don't get carried away with your pruning shears, but uh, uh, it's fine to, like I say, start their their general training very early. Yeah, I uh, I didn't cut them all off. I left I don't know maybe three or four. So yeah, I didn't that's leave fine. It as a single trunk. Very good. Very good. Okay. Uh, the other right. thing to check, and and those of us in the nursery business are, it, with crepe myrtles, it's just hard to check every one. And I would say, 
95% of the crepe myrtles or maybe even 100% of the crepe myrtles we get from growers, and I'm sure Phoenix is the same way, they're planted too deeply in the pots when we get them. So do be sure that you've got the soil pulled away from the trunk down to the point that you see those first big roots coming out. If you find little fibrous roots up above, just cut them away. But long term for the health and the growth and the blooming on the crepe myrtles, very, very important to have that root flare exposed and almost every crepe myrtle you buy is going to come to you too deeply in the pot so you need to be real careful in planting and in their early care sure sure and and i did that when they were planted good well, uh, very good the other, the other uh thing i wanted to talk to you about was uh sago like uh like most people february <laughs> knocked mine out he now, knocked them way back I, yeah I, I was able to cover the majority of them, but I, my oldest and biggest one is uh, was sixty is sixteen years old. So I I didn't have anything big enough to cover it. I even tried multiple pieces of shade clod, you know, and whatever yep. whatever I had. Yep. And so it it looked like that it completely died. Well, mm-hmm. then when um, when it started to get warm, it grew sprouts you know pups right up from the roots uh-huh and uh it i say it's it's my sago that uh, keeps on giving because uh, <laughs> three years ago i took four pups off and mm-hmm. planted them and three of them are still alive Good. and uh and uh, earlier well just i guess it was last month we took four more off right of, uh of the old plant. Now, what was interesting is I had told my yard guy because we had that ugly stalk. Uh-huh. I, I told him to cut it off. Well, he hadn't got around to doing it yet. And uh-huh. first thing you know, it is sprouting leaves out of the top as well as yep. from the roots. Yes, and I'm glad he didn't cut it back. Now, one thing that a lot of sagos are doing, when you get put a plant under a lot of stress, many times it decides it's important to reproduce, to make seed. Some little thing in its plant brain says, hey, you, you could die. You better make some new plants. And this cold threw a lot of plants, a lot of sagos, into a reproductive mode. And, of course, the male plants and female plants are separate. But with both of them, when they go into this reproductive phase, they go for a full year without making a single frond so i tell people on sagos if that trunk starts getting spongy starts getting soft starts breaking over then cut it off but as long as it's firm uh chances are it will come back out and there's some of them that you know it may be uh maybe another six months before they really start putting them on much in the way of fronds so leave yours and let it go uh the trunk on a on a true palm or a sago which is actually a cycad has a totally different structure than an oak or an elm or a peach tree or a grape myrtle and while a lot of other trees were damaged because the most active part of the tree is just underneath the bark in the case of a cycad or a palm it doesn't have that layer underneath 
underneath the bark. In fact, it doesn't have a true bark. Uh, those tissues, the xylem, the phloem, the cambium, uh, they are scattered in bundles throughout the trunk. So that sago is actually going to recover much better than a woody shrub that, you know, went through the same thing. So just give it your normal good care. Now, at this point, I would stop taking the pups off uh, because it's very hard to establish them once we move into a cooler season. July, August are the months that we take pups off of sagos and get them started, usually with great success. But as we move into cooler weather, you're better just let them stay where they are and wait till next summer to take more of them off and uh, plant them that was why we did it when we did. Uh, well, you your, did. Uh, remembered your advice on that. Now, the ones that I, uh, these last four that I took off, uh, I have been watering them every day now for about 10 days. Mm-hmm. Should I keep that up? You should keep the soil moist. Um, I doubt that you really need to do it every day, but on the other hand, don't let it get bone dry. You know, uh, the little pups usually have few or no roots on them, so you almost have to put a stake or something in on either side to hold them in place. And you want that soil to be moist but not soggy wet. And you want those roots to really be hot. If they, if we get an early cool front, if they haven't hardened off by then, get a propagating mat or something like that that provides additional bottom heat to get those roots going before the weather cools off. I doubt that you'll have to do that. I think you'll be fine. But uh, keep the soil moist but not soggy wet. Well, and I've, I've also, in addition to water, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been feeding them with uh, liquid has to grow. And oh, I've that's great. Twice now. Yeah, that's great. Do that every uh, uh, about every two to four weeks, and they'll love you for it. Good, good. Bob, as usual, I appreciate all your advice, and uh, keep up the good work. Well, it sounds like you're a good listener, because you're already doing just about everything the right way, Bernie, so you keep up the good work, too, and I look forward to our next visit, sir. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Certainly. Thanks a lot. You, too. Certainly. Bye. Bye. All right, let's stop for a break here. Peggy will be up next, but I get to talk about Medina agriculture, and uh, it's always such a pleasure. You know, Stuart Frankie and all the family and the crew over at Medina just work tirelessly to keep bringing us new products, some of which they make, some of which are products that they, uh, you know, that they acquire. I always think about things like their orange oil, which is truly the best in the business. Now, I can't say they squeeze their own citrus peel, but they search hard to find the very best sources. And if you've ever compared the Medina orange oil to some of the other brands... (laughs) You'll never buy anything but Medina, I'll promise you that. Medina makes so many fine products and things like their growing green fertilizer, certified organic. Great thing to put on this time of year. If you haven't fed your grass, your trees, your shrubs in the past 90 days or so, going into fall is one of the most important times to feed. In fact, fall feeding, and that includes on through the fall, but that's the single most important fertilizing you do for the year, and there's no better product out there than Medina's growing green fertilizer. I use their Has to Grow. I love their new liquid fish blend and I'll tell you stories sometime about some of the reports people are giving on how well that product works but just know that Benita Aguirre makes quality products that will help you garden better. Their products are used worldwide but they were developed right here in South Texas so I think they still work best right here. When you're at a good store that carries natural and organic products remember to look for that name Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a nice, humid Sunday morning. Uh, First uh, 
of September, just a couple of days away, and uh, typically that's when it starts cooling down a little bit, so let's keep our fingers crossed. Uh, next in line is Peggy. Good morning, Peggy. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I, ha- I have some questions, please, about putting cornmeal out under um, the oak trees. Okay. In some in some cases, I'm trying to prevent it from spreading, and in some cases, the trees already have it, and okay. I'm trying to bring them along, give them some vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, actually, you're trying to get a, a good fungus in there to start combating the bad fungus or to stimulate the tree to be doing mm-hmm. more to combat the bad fungus. Um Years past, you know, when I started promoting this, golly, probably 15, 20 years ago when we realized that it had the ability to stop or prevent oak wilt, um, we always used the dry cornmeal. We put it out under the drip line of the trees, and, you know, many people have had extremely good results. In recent times, since there's been a lot more research done, uh, unfortunately not much in this country, these idiots here just want to sell you that $1,000 tree chemical that doesn't really work, but they've done a lot of uh, research in Europe with it, and they're finding that, um, number one, it's just as effective to soak some cornmeal in water overnight. Uh, The ratio is about two cups of cornmeal to five gallons of water, and you can treat a much larger area with much less cornmeal meal that way and furthermore we're finding that it really isn't necessary to try to cover it all over the drip line that most of it is actually taken up by the tree within 10 feet or so of the trunk so um, nowadays what most people are doing and in my experience very successfully uh, depending on the size of the tree they'll do from one to three or four or five gallon buckets uh, a cornmeal in the water, soak it overnight, and then just pour it over the root zone. And it takes a lot less cornmeal and a lot less time to do it. So that's the principal way we're going about treating these days. Now, I'd use one five-gallon bucket for a tree that was up to, say, four or five inches in diameter, six or eight-inch tree. I'd probably use a couple of buckets. A giant tree, I'd use as many as four buckets of that solution around them. And on a preventive basis, seems to work best to do it about once a month, I'm sorry, about once every six months, uh, where you're actually trying to control a problem in a tree that already has oak wilt, doing it about once a month. So kind of like taking some of the medications to prevent uh, uh, COVID. We, we, don't do, we only do them a lot less often, um, but when you actually have it, you take that medication a lot more frequently, and so that's sort of the same way with the oak wilt, you know, every... Every uh, every six months or so on a preventive basis, but uh, probably every right. month uh, if you're actually fighting the disease. And again, it's not the cornmeal that's the magic. It's the trichoderma, which we're learning, actually stimulates the tree's own defenses to start walling off and fighting off the ceratostasis, which is the, uh, the oak wilt fungus. So uh, the most important thing is it works, and it works very well. Yeah, um, let me ask you this. These trees are out in the pasture, so it's kind of hard uh-huh. to get the water out there. But if I, I, what I've been trying to do is hit, get it out before we get a rain sometime. Right, you know, right. Predicted. Is that, is that a, um, 
legit? Is that Oh, yeah, yeah. It's still okay. effective. It just takes more of it. And, of course, you know, you can have problems bringing in the damned hogs and everything out there from <laughs> birds to hogs to deer to coyotes, everything else. So trying to time it around the rain, and good luck with that effort. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's still, I'll tell you a funny thing. My friend up in Sisterdale that I uh, uh, buy hay from, uh, he had two massive oak trees that he he treated. And, by the way, that was several years ago. Those trees are beautiful now, and everything around them is dead. But uh, he's also a pig farmer, and I encouraged him to scoop as much of the uh, refuse from the pigs as possible and put it out there. The other thing you could do, I'm not telling you to get pig poop, but maybe get some compost and just put over some of the cornmeal you put out. makes it a little harder for the critters to get to. But anyway, he had some arborists were, were watching and, and watching these these huge trees getting better and better and better. And I, <laughs> I had one of my arborist friends tell me you don't know how many arborists out there were praying please don't let it be the pig poop please let it be the cornmeal please don't let it be the pig poop but research seems to show that the pig poop may have helped but it's the cornmeal that really did the work <laughs> good info <laughs> yes indeed uh, another quick question um am i remembering correctly that um compost scattered over uh, a sticker bed will uh, eventually take out the stickers well, it, it works as a natural pre-emergent, um, and not just scattered, but maybe, you know, a quarter of an inch to a half inch layer put out. That's what I did in an area that I had a horrible sticker burr problem. I did it in the fall, and the next spring, where I normally would probably have 10,000 sticker burr plants, I think I pulled five or three plants all summer long. Oh, so right. you don't just throw a little bit of it out. You, you know, you get a fair amount of it and you spread it, uh, somewhere between a quarter and a half an inch thick, and it will not only uh, do a great job of eliminating stickers, but it sure does make the grass grow prettier as well. Oh, yeah. Um, what time of year would you do that? Springtime? Uh, fall is when I do it because I want to get ahead of the germination. Yeah, I did it, I want to say October or so. Actually, it was a pretty big area, and I was pretty busy, so I, I think I got my compost in October, and I had it all spread by, you know, early November, so it doesn't have to go out all at one time, but um, it just depends on how many strong backs you can find to help you. My only helpers at that point were two labs and uh, eight guineas, but the guineas would get in and wallow in it at night, so they help spread it around a little bit, too. <laughs> anyway, it's a big it's a big job, but it sure does be fighting the damn sticker yeah. burrs. You bet, you bet. Um, and one last thing, is there um, any grass that will overcome the uh, uh, KR2? KR blue stem? Um, yeah. You know, most of the native grasses will. Is this, are you working in a pasture, or is yeah. this actually in your yard? Well, uh, my yard is not exactly manicured. It's, uh, it's uh, Sure. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, it, it you know a, a good Bermuda in your yard proper will if you keep the KR blue stem mowed down or Kleberg blue stem, uh -huh. whichever one you're fighting. Um, I would call Douglas King Seed. Ask for Dean Williams down there. He's the head guy, and ask Dean which of the native grasses uh, he finds are most effective at combating uh, the KR blue stem. I. 
you know, okay. I, I know I have a lot of curly mesquite. I know I have uh, mm-hmm. some Cytos grandma, uh, and I have a bunch of little blue stem, and they have really made progress against the KR blue stem. But uh, um, Dean might be able to save you some experimenting and tell you one which one generally shows the best results, assuming we get this continued moisture and things like that. Right. Well, thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate all the information you give us all the time. Well, it's my pleasure, Peggy. I appreciate your call this morning, and uh, good luck with your trees. Let me know how everything's working for you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, let's pause for a minute here and talk about the Cedar Eater of Texas. Again, talk about something that really works. You know, we tell you about uh, when you get rid of the cedar, how your land recovers, how you start getting your native grasses back, your native trees and shrubs and wildflowers. Well, nobody does a better job of getting rid of the cedar in a very friendly environmental fashion than the Cedar Eater does. So many people want to come in with a track hole or a bulldozer or whatever and bulldoze down that cedar and then pile it up and burn it. You know, number one, you're wasting a lot of valuable organic material. Number two, you're loosening your soil up to where it'll wash away in the next rain. And number three, you're really messing up a lot of the plants that you should be saving. Cedar Eater avoids all those problems because their machine cuts off the cedar at ground level, which kills it effectively, and grinds it into a nice mulch all in one operation. Now, I will admit, if you've got super thick cedar, you're going to have a good deal of mulch, and it may take a little bit longer before those native grasses to come poking up through it. But they will do it and it is just the most effective and very very environmentally friendly fashion that you can get rid of that cedar of course cedar eater also has other services have a different machine to take down big trees that might have died in the freeze or perhaps of oak wilt and by the way no danger of spreading oak wilt this way but uh, they can take care of that they even have a machine called the grubber that rips out mesquite roots and all Great company. Give them a call if you have any questions. 210-745-2743. 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening on a nice Sunday morning out there. It's going to be Omar, Tracy, and Mary in that order. Omar's up first. Good morning, Omar. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm off to a good start. How about yourself? Uh, not too bad. I'm going to be trapping some cattle today and just uh, doing a little of this and a little of that. Uh, I tell you, that's uh, I've got a little bit of that to do myself a little bit later this month. But, uh, you know, it's, I'm sure you've learned as I have, you can't make a cow do anything. But if you let them think it's their idea, then... Uh, <laughs> Mine at least cooperate pretty well. They many times they'll they'll climb into that trailer if there's a nice pile of cubes up in the front end, and I can just slam the gate behind them. So uh, hopefully, whatever you're doing will go quickly and easily. Because dealing with a 1,200 pound animal, uh, you're not going to force it to do very much. Yeah, well, the market's pretty good right now, and they don't want to do what we need them to do, and then the dogs come in to help. So ah, very good. <laughs> Some four-legged help is always appreciated. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm telling you. Um, <clears throat> my neighbors over here, um, This is I, I went over there, let the, I got a call to go over there and, and look at their ant problem, and it was something I have never seen, never even heard of in my life. But I'm, I'm guessing that they're harvester ants they look uh, like a smaller red ant is that is that right 
Uh, the harvester ant is pretty much solid red. The various carpenter ants will be red and black, but if it's a solid red ant, um, that is most commonly a harvester ant. Now realize we have well over a hundred species of ants in this area, so uh, some of them common, some of them not so common, but uh, solid red, probably a harvester ant, even if a little bit smaller. Okay, and they they were they were all packing you know a piece of leaf or a piece of something you know big trails, yep. but the mounds were like nothing I've ever seen you know a foot and a half tall by eight foot long. I mean it just oh huge. wow now now they have made it to the house. They're building upside on the on the outside walls and have made it inside the house. And, oh goodness! Um, I yep. was tell, telling them you know I don't know what I can do for the inside the house, but outside the only thing I'm thinking of is wettable sulfur. Will that work? Well, spinosad will will do a better job of uh, you know killing the ants. Wettable sulfur is if it is if they are in effect. If you can break open one of those mounds, if they are actually you know growing the way way the uh, leaf cutting ants do, they actually grow a fungus on the leaves rather than eating the leaves themselves and uh, the sulfur kills that fungus but now your harvester ants don't do that your harvester ants are actually taking pieces of the plant that they will ultimately eat over the winter months seeds and other things that have the nutrients they need so um, I don't without knowing specifically for sure that it you know would be a leaf cutting ant I don't uh, I don't think the sulfur would be that effective and all the leaf cutters I've ever seen are black in color and they have giant jaws they have these huge you know it's just like like a big pair of uh, pruning, shear, pruning shears on the front so my suggestion uh, would be to go with spinosad um, in a liquid form and uh, spinosad will kill them almost instantly uh, it's the main product uh, that is in things like the come and get it bait um, and like I say, I, I will make a drench out of it. My second choice is uh, orange oil. And orange oil does a very good job of killing them as well. Um, it just, you know, six one half a dozen of another. Orange oil, if you get it too strong, can burn plants. Uh, so I'm reluctant to use it, you know, too strong in the vegetable garden or flower beds or things like that. But the spinosad is an excellent, excellent ant killer. Now, I have to tell you, when we were at the Far West Nursery Show in Oregon last week, and I just go, we go up there because some of those people have some different ideas some different products and things like that and uh, we picked up some samples of a new product we're going to be experimenting with called peppermint fury who uh, <laughs> i don't know how they came up with that name but it is a peppermint it's an essential oil product and uh, they're telling us it not only kills the ants effectively but it destroys the pheromone trail that the ants leave behind and of course that's many ants you know one ant walks in the footsteps of the ant in front of it due to this uh, it's, it's a hormonal thing they call pheromones sort of insect hormones and uh, supposedly 
This stuff destroys the pheromone trail, and that's a, a big advantage in getting rid of the ants as well. Now, um, I, you know, if you're ever interested, I can, I can send you the address of the people who make this stuff, but I want to try it out before we put it on our yeah, shelves. But yeah. it, it, it shows some good promise as an insecticide and a fungicide, and plus it smells good. So I like all of those Ooh. things. But something that you can go out and get today, uh, would be spinosad. Now, you don't need to get spinosad soap. Fighting ants, just get uh, Captain Jack's dead bug or whatever form you find the spinosad in. But that's probably going to be your most effective ant killer. Um, if you find a relatively small, discreet mound and you want to make a, uh, a mix of orange oil and water, that will kill them almost instantly. Uh, Nature's Creation makes a product they call Mound Drench, which is based on rosemary oil rather than orange oil. And it works extremely well, but um, it sounds like you've got a big job ahead of you, and I think uh, it would certainly be more economical uh, starting out with the spinosad and then perhaps spot treating with one of the essential oils, uh, uh, you know, if you need to follow up on, on little isolated outbreaks afterwards. Gotcha. What, what is the rate on the orange oil? On the rate of orange oil, I use about maybe three ounces to a gallon. Um, it works at a lower dilution because occasionally I'll need to, uh, you know, put it in a pot where the fire ants have, you know, started a mound in a pot with a live plant growing in it. I cut it all the way down to about a teaspoon per gallon in that case. It takes a little bit longer, and I don't know if it really kills them or it runs them out, but when it comes to a fire ant mound with the blasted little things coming after me, I want them dead right now, and two to three ounces per gallon will do that. Now, uh, inside the house, you can actually use spinosad, um, it, it's one of the safest things you could use. It could be used inside, and certainly orange oil can be used inside. I use it as countertop cleaner, use it as, uh, you know, for a lot of cleaning purposes inside. So, um, it would, I wouldn't even hesitate, uh, you know, to put it in a little spray bottle and spray it around. I, I've used it more outside. I have a friend that had a problem with, uh, uh, wood ants in wooden shutters on the outside of her home. And I had her just spray those shutters thoroughly with the orange oil mix. A uh, mutual friend who was a builder told her, oh, you better you better get an exterminator out there. Uh, well, the exterminator came out, took the shutters off, and said, lady, I don't know what you did, but you killed all the ants. You don't need me. So <laughs> it, uh, it, it does work very well. But uh, in this case, uh, I, I doubt that the wettable sulfur is going to be what you need, Omar. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, do you think that uh, we put out, you know, this, this branch behind us, you know, we're we're about a half a mile away from each other, but, uh, you know, we put out, uh, or I do, uh, uh, nematodes, you know, several times a year, and we mm-hmm. don't have this problem. Is that, is there any uh, link to that, or do they... Oh, absolutely. Nematodes are, are incredible ant killers, but you know, when we talk about things like fire ants, you can have, they're saying up to 4 million fire ants in a mound um, with multiple queens, and when you're putting out, you know, a million nematodes at a time, that's that's like, you know, one company Marines fighting off a whole battalion of the enemy. It's going to take a little while to get them under control, but they will get the job done. And uh, those beneficial nematodes are sort of your Marines. They're tough guys that will eventually wipe them out, but it's going to take some time. So, yes, beneficial nematodes are very effective, but if you just went and applied them to a fire ant mound, it might be two or three weeks before you really eliminated the fire. 
variants, other things like the essential oils or the spinosad, they're going to do the job. In case of the essential oils, they'll do it within minutes. The spinosad will kill them within a day. Gotcha. All righty, sir. Well, I certainly appreciate it. And uh, let me know if you figure out what those ants are. We're always interested in the in the newest problem showing up in town. I'm I'm thinking it's probably just a small uh, harvester ant of some sort. But uh, if you get a chance, uh, you know there's some pretty nice folks in the pest control industry, and uh, wouldn't hurt a thing to uh, see if you can gather up a couple of ants, get them in a Ziploc bag or something, and uh, let a let a good entomologist take a look at them and see what you're dealing with, just to know for sure. Yes, sir. Gotcha. All righty. Well, y'all have, have a good morning. day, sir. You do the same. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Bye. All right. Let's got to get a quick break out in the way or out of the way before the end of this hour. Uh, Tracy and Mary will be up next. But right now I get to talk about the tank depot. And uh, interesting. I've had uh, three people in the past two days in the nursery seriously interested in getting into rainwater catchment. And, of course, the question is always, where do I get my tanks? Well, I always tell them, you want several things. You want a dense material, you want a dark material so you don't have algae growing inside the tank. You want a durable tank, and you want a reasonable price. That's why Tank Depot always comes to mind here in San Antonio, because they have a wide, wide array of rainwater catchment tanks, along with all other kinds of tanks as well. And uh, if you're looking at a big system, and one of these fellows was looking at uh, some 1,000-gallon tanks, uh, Tank Depot can actually arrange delivery for you as well, it takes takes a good his trailer to handle a thousand gallon or a five thousand gallon tank, but they've got the best and they've got the best prices you're going to find, and the accessories that you would need to set up a. Uh, uh, system for delivering your water, whether you're just going to use it for irrigation or whether you actually plan to uh, use it as a potable water source. Tank Depot, of course, also has uh, open-top tanks, bait tanks, chemical storage tanks, transfer tanks for the back of your pickup. If it's a tank, the Tank Depot is going to have it. Always best quality, always at the best prices. Weekends, check them out online at tank-depot.com. Weekdays, you can actually go see them. I'm sure they'll be closed for Labor Day, but uh, other times, you just go see them. Their sales yard in San Antonio is actually right on Southeast Loop 410, just south of Rigsby Avenue. The Tank Depot, D-E-P-O-T. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, right back to the phone line. It's Tracy's turn. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. Good morning. two questions. The first one is, can loblolly pine grow in the hill country? No. Um, it would be rare. Loblolly pine is an East Texas tree that likes sandy, acidic soils, and I don't know anywhere in the hill country that has sandy, acidic soils. Uh, your best bet in the hill country is going to be, for a small pine, you can grow an Italian stone pine. For a bigger pine, you can grow what we call the halopensis or the Aleppo pines. Those are the only ones that will truly make a big, healthy tree in the hill country. Uh, if you want something that looks like a conifer, there's also a tree called the Deodore cedar, which looks very much like a blue spruce. But... Uh, um, and it will do reasonably well in the hill country, but uh, loblolly slash pines, um, those are strictly in East Texas. Okay, and then the second question, my brother has this, it looks like a large bush, but he says it's a Mexican olive, and it has kind of furry, furry um, leaves, and the flowers are really white and pretty, mm-hmm. and yep. 
I wasn't sure, you know, he says it's what it is. Uh, well, do you think that's what it could be? That's exactly what it uh, sounds like. Uh, it's it's botanically, uh, the genus is Cordia. I believe it's a C, not a K, but C-O-R-D-I-A, if you want to look it up. Um, they are... I, I wouldn't recommend them too far up into the hill country because they're barely cold hardy in San Antonio. And if you get very much north of San Antonio, uh, they can freeze and die if the temperatures get down even into the teens. I would say probably 80% of them in San Antonio died completely with our very severe February weather. So uh, it's one of the most beautiful summer flowering trees or big bushes that you'll ever see. Yeah, but if you're very far north of San Antonio, you need a very protected area to plant it. Yeah, his, he lives in Castorville, so his okay. came back yeah. after the freeze. Yeah. But I, if I'm in Leon Springs area, forget it. I'm not I, I would suggest it, yeah. Uh, Tracy, if you have more questions, I'm going to get Don to put you on hold because I've got to get to news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, let's get back uh, back to gardening, back to the phone calls. It is going to be Mary and Tana and Sari, uh, Sarah, and uh, we start with Mary. Uh, good morning, Mary. Good morning, Bob. Uh, How are you today? Omar, I'm good, I'm good, but I think you answered Omar's question, and it's kind of on the similar question that I have. I have um, some climbing jasmine, uh-huh. and I noticed at the base of it I was watering it, the dirt looked a little different. Uh-huh. So upon investigating, I have a whole bunch of ants coming up through it, through okay. the very base of it. And I didn't have any seven dust. I didn't have any orange oil. So, um, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't have the seven dust. That stuff's pretty toxic. You don't want to use that. Oh, okay. But okay. describe the ants to me. What, what do the ants look like? They're the mean little ants that they bite you and they yeah. hurt like the dickens. Uh, um, we're talking... Yeah, we're talking. There, there. Those are the fire ants, and there are two ways that you can address them. And the the thing, you know, and I normally kill them with something like orange oil if they're out in the grass or somewhere like that. But orange oil is is a desiccant. It can burn roots. It can cause some damage to plants. So, um, if you are concerned about, uh, it sounds like star jasmine. They're up and around. Um, you, if you want to use orange oil, make it very dilute, like a teaspoon per gallon, and then pour it around anywhere you see the ants. If you would rather do something that is a hundred percent safe and is effective, I'd say over ninety percent of the time, there's a product out there by Fertilome which is called come and get it and uh, it is a bait it is totally safe for people and pets uh, but it works the only two ants it works against are harvester ants and fire ants but what you do is without disturbing the ants you just go sprinkle a little bit of this around they pick it up it's uh, the active ingredient is spinosad it's impregnated into something that is what they call a preferred food for fire ants and that means the workers take it back and feed it to the queen because the queen gets the best of the best only the queen in this case is going to get some spinosad and die so um, it, it takes a little bit longer to eliminate them but you can just sprinkle it out let the ants find it take it back to the colony and uh, normally the the package tells you up to a week 
I've always had it work overnight. When I've used it, I've usually had no more ants after 24 hours. So um, oh, okay. that is that would be safest for your plants and stand a very, very good chance of controlling the problem. If you want them dead in five minutes, then just make your orange oil mix real dilutely and go pour it around everywhere you're seeing the ants. Awesome. Okay. Um, I will go get some of that today. Um, I also wanted to just make mention of a quick observation I had about that cornmeal tea, and you probably know this already, but I mix them in my five-gallon bucket, and I Uh had a chance to use it um, the next day, so it sat for a while, and, (laughs) you know, it was it, I actually kind of enjoyed the smell that was coming off of it. it was very <laughs> but um, I noticed that there were not a one mosquito larvae in that stuff. And then I noticed that there were a whole bunch of dead flies in it. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking it's really useful in catching those big old horse flies. And, and there was no mosquito larvae in that whatsoever. Well, that's, yeah, I've noticed no mosquito larvae, but I can't say I've really noticed that with the flies. That would be, um, that would be a great thing because, boy, I hate the horse flies, but, um, it will go beyond being a pleasant smell. <laughs> Eventually it will go to being a much less pleasant smell. So I don't think you want to leave it standing for too long, but, um, you know, you it, uh, you can use it after, like a, a week still, right? You, you can. I wouldn't go much longer than that. And, you know, in your yard, uh, that is fine. But I have to tell you that uh, um, the blasted wild hogs and feral hogs are such a problem in the hill country. And, uh, when, and, and that's one of the things I use to bait hog trap is uh, the fermented corn. I use usually corn rather than cornmeal, but I'll put it in water, let it soak for a day or two, because they love that stinky, you know, semi-rotten stuff. So uh, if you're out in the country, if you have any issue with hogs, be careful where you wind up pouring it, because they may come in and root around a great deal looking for the the source of that scent. Uh, but mm. you know, if okay. if you're inside, if you if you're away from, and I say that, and uh, I have friends recently that built a house out in Stone Oak, and they had a bunch of hogs come in and tear up their yard, you know, right in a residential neighborhood, and uh, you know, feral hogs are are just an issue that needs to be addressed. Hopefully, the uh, folks that regulate such things, we we've got a new, very safe bait out. That uh, and and it's weird. It's one of the things that actually goes into making sausage and bacon. It's a preservative that they use, but the hogs eat it and they simply go to sleep and don't wake up. And um, they wow. they they they're experimenting with it. They're using it actually in the uh, ABK. The the uh, folks that uh, Albert Messi Kronkowski State Natural Area just down the road from me, and they say it works well. There are a few people that um, are concerned. They say, well, it might kill other things, too. But the only other thing I think they've found that is harmful, too, is raccoons. And I have to say I like it even better now. But some people are in love with their <laughs> raccoons. But uh, uh, if hopefully we're going to have a good product before long to help limit uh, the hogs because they are just so destructive. So anyway, getting a little bit off the yeah. subject here, just be careful in that fermented, overly fermented cornmeal may be attractive to okay. them in your area if, uh, you know, hopefully that's not an issue. Well, between the hogs and the armadillos, we have, you know, several holes <laughs> that 
I'll I'll take the armadillos. I'll take the armadillos any day. <laughs> we can right, trap them right. and uh, and remove them, but the hogs are just horribly destructive. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's one of the few downsides of living in the country. You have to deal with a few critters that you're less likely to have in town. But uh, I still wouldn't trade it. <laughs> And just one quick more question about the blue bonnets. There was yes. nothing that came up in after the the freeze. Uh-huh. Do we have to replant, or do you think they might? I think we. We'll, I think we'll probably be looking at one of the best blue bonnet seasons. If the rain cooperates, we'll probably be looking at one of the best blue bonnet seasons we've had next year because you oh, know yeah. freezing. Freezing weather actually tends to scarify the seeds a little bit better so that following a hard freeze like that, um, chances are we're going to see a higher rate of germination. Again, all this is dependent on rainfall, but uh, I I doubt that we will have to do much replanting because as hard as those seeds are, that's Mother Nature's built-in you know factor. She doesn't want them all to germinate the first year or even the second or third year. Always wants to have a few held in reserve. So I, I'm pretty sure we're going to have good blue bonnets, and I'm hopeful we're going to have outstanding blue bonnets this next year if we get the rainfall to go along with it. Oh, that's good news. Okay, thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate it. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, and you have a good Sunday. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, next up is Tana. Good morning, Tana. Good morning, kind sir. Good morning. Okay. Uh, I lost my fig this winter, no surprise, and in uh, traveling 1604, there was um, a vendor who had just a whole lot of one-gallon pots with figs in them, so I decided, what the heck, Um, and I got one and brought it home, and it... uh, It's not growing up so much as it's growing out and the limbs are just horizontal right to the ground you mm-hmm. can barely get your finger under them okay so, uh, do i just let it continue growing as it is it's finally beginning to send up a central trunk mm-hmm. so how long do i leave those uh Lateral lines, whatever. <laughs> Lateral limbs. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's strictly up to you. Any limb that has green leaves on it is absorbing the sun's energy and is making for a stronger plant. Now, um, it's you don't really want your figs down close to ground level because it makes them too accessible from everything from ants to pill bugs to uh, rodents and things like that. So you have a choice. You can actually... You know, prop them up or tie them up, try to get them up above ground level, or you can simply, you know, trim them off and encourage the growth to go into the upper part of the plant. Now, I still always think that a fig is best as a multi-trunk bush rather than a tree, per se, because they're very, very weak-wooded, but... um it's And, and I'm sure this, this fella didn't know what kind of fig it was, did he? He said it was Celeste. 
Okay, that doesn't sound like Celeste, but, you know, maybe it's just the way in which they were propagated. If you desire to have more figs, more plants, one thing you can do where those limbs are right down on the ground, um, you can do what we call a layer. We talk all the time about air layers where we pre-root a cutting above the ground, but for many, many years, the standard way that most nursery plants were propagated was uh, the, the grower would you know take a metal you know loop like a croquet wicket shaped thing and actually push a plant's limb down to the ground and then just put a big scoop of dirt over the top of it and most things and especially if you scar the bottom of the limb a little bit many woody plants especially figs will start putting out roots and a month from now um, you could go in and simply take your pruning shears, cut that uh, that limb loose, and it would have a nice set of roots on you. And you just pot it up, and you've got a whole new fig tree. And uh, so figs are, are easy to layer because uh, many of them do you know, uh, have limbs that are close enough that you can actually pin them to the ground. In this case, it sounds like there's no pinning needed. You can just put a shovel full of dirt on top of it. So if you want to start some additional figs to share with friends or, or have your own roadside, fig stand uh it's real easy to do but uh you can prop them up celeste is you know is a bushy fig and it's a very good fig because it's uh it forms a little drop of rosin on the end of the fig so you don't ever get those fruit weevils down into it so uh, if it is indeed celeste uh it will make a it'll make a good big bush for you eventually you'll probably want to do some trimming and just take out some of the lower limbs but uh if you want to get more upright to begin with just prop them up just take uh you know where where you can find a a y-shaped stick you know of whatever length just use it to go around and prop those limbs up off the ground and uh hopefully as they get woodier they will stay a little bit more upright and then uh, as you prune of course just prune uh, leave, leaving the limbs that are going to be you know most uh, you know most vertical nice thing about having a lot of limbs down low is you don't have to get up on a ladder to pick the fruit uh, my fig trees I just uh, and mine froze back to the ground but they have come back out but uh, I typically just let the birds have the high ones and I get the low ones but uh, the choice is up to you you can handle it any way you like Tana they uh, you know, they sounds like a good plant next time around. I just take and mound up compost or whatever, 10, 12 inches uh, around the base of the fig. And I'd have to say probably 90% of the figs that I've looked at are coming back out. Some of them are a little bit slow, but especially the ones that were heavily mulched at the base uh, came through even this uh, cold winter. So let's protect that Celeste. Uh, hopefully it'll be a long time before we see whether this cold, but uh, just what uh, one of my friends calls it volcano mulching, um, that saved a lot of figs tree this, this time. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, I have done that ground layering thing with vines before uh-huh. in the past. Yep. And um, uh, the uh, because you kept saying, wait, 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 the Miho Satsuma did finally come back out. <laughs> Very good. And it made two branches. And from something you had told me in the past, I waited until... Um, I determined which was probably the best, and so I pruned the second limb. So I now have just the single one, and Very it's good. doing quite well. Good. And I have a question about 
cornmeal. Seems like we're on a roll with that. Okay. I am using the cornmeal soak for a big toe. Uh huh. For the um, for the fungus. Right. Now, what is the best use of the cornmeal uh, slurry, whatever, when I'm ready to get rid of it? I just throw it out in the garden. I, you know, uh, again, it uh, over time it will start growing uh, some unattractive fungi on it. I, I tend to probably make a fresh, fresh batch about every three or four days, uh, but the old just goes out either into the garden or the compost pile. I'm, I'm not using it really for a specific purpose, but because of the trichoderma it grows, uh, it's. Uh, there's certainly nothing harmful about it, and it does control a lot of different problems. And, uh, you know, in the oak trees, it does create what we call this systemic induced resistance against oak wilt and things. But I just discard it into the landscape wherever it's most convenient. That's what I've been doing. I've just been uh, throwing it into one of the flower beds, and I'm thinking uh-huh. maybe I shouldn't do that so much anymore, so I thought I'd check. <laughs> Well, it's not going to hurt anything, but your four-legged friends may decide that that would be a good place to go munch on things. So uh, you might put it uh, in an area where that's not likely to happen. (laughs) But other than that, it's not harmful in any way. And you've been talking a lot, and this is not a question. It's just an observation. When we moved out here, uh, we had grass burrs, horrible, just tremendously grass burrs sand burrs whatever you want to call them and you had recommended at the time uh just usually your lawnmower Uh and i did that and it was um overall it was quite successful very good i noticed that the harvester ants would visit once it had dried pretty well and i would have a trail of harvester ants (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> each with sand burrs in its mandibles, taking it back home. Well, fortunately, they're preparing to eat it, so uh, they're not replanting it. But uh, that's you know that that's a, a very astute observation. They will eat. I don't know that it's one of their favorite seeds. I think they like grains better than they like the burrs. But anything that'll help to get rid of those burrs is a friend of mine. Well. Hey, out here it was either open ground or grazed down so far yep. that only things like the sand burrs did. But right. as far as that's concerned, well, I've always tended to look at nature and see what it was doing. Well, <laughs> and it's always entertaining and uh, it lets you know I, I, I'd say when I look at hummingbirds and uh, the colors in a painting bunny, I think it's a pretty good indication that the uh, good Lord does have a sense of humor with <laughs> some of the things he created armadillas and things like that so the observation of nature is uh, is a wonderful thing that I wish more kids learned early on Tane, it's always a pleasure visiting with you you get out and have a great Sunday Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right. Let's talk for a moment about Dr. Mark Williamson. And again, 
There are a lot of things in this world that I just don't think are really good. And corporate medicine, corporate dentistry is one of them. And I was talking to a doctor friend recently, and he said, yeah, I said these uh, men and women come out of med school with huge debt. They go to work for some big cor- cor- corporation because they need the money. But then they get into this thing where you're only allowed so many minutes to see a patient. Many times in the case of dentistry, implants and things like that, they may come in from overseas, even from China. Well, Dr. Mark Williamson is a fellow who says, I'm not going to do dentistry that way. You will not find a more kind and caring dentist or office anywhere that I know of. In fact, a friend of mine went to see Dr. Williamson recently, and he said, man, those people must be on something. They are so happy and so friendly all the time. And I assured him, no, it's just simply the way they do business. And Dr. Williamson is so broadly trained. You know, that's the other thing about corporate dentistry. If it's anything beyond cleaning or filling, they want to send you out to some specialist. Dr. Williamson can take care of virtually every oral health issue right there in his own office. And that, again, that's going to save you a lot of hassle and save you a lot of money, too. If you're looking for a a dentist who will be your friend as well as a very, very good dentist, you owe it to yourself to check out the offices of Dr. Mark Williamson and Associates. Give them a call anytime, 210-341-2569, 210-341-2569 for a really good dental experience. And by the way, he's carrying on the work of Dr. Staffel. If you really have anxiety, they do sedation dentistry as well as most other types. That's the offices of Dr. Mark Williamson. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening once again. And uh, gosh, it's, uh, you know, it, it really is, it's just amazing looking at what uh, the hurricane season is doing right now with the big hurricane headed, unfortunately, looks like pretty much toward New Orleans and on the same day that Katrina hit all those years ago. But uh, I thought some prayers go out to everybody over in that part of the world because it's going to be, a, it's, it's a big storm as Don and I were just talking. It's, I think, a little bit bigger and a little bit more powerful than they expected. And it's amazing how it could go from a tropical storm to a Category 4, perhaps even moving moving up to a Category 5 hurricane within less than 24 hours. So uh, keep those folks uh, in your thoughts over there. Uh, we're going to talk uh, gardening right now, and it's going to be Sarah and Ray and Stephen. And Sarah is up first. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. How are you? I'm off to a good start this morning. I hope you are as well. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, three quick questions. I planted some raspberry bushes three years ago. Haven't <laughs> okay. got haven't got a berry yet, but I don't know when to prune them. I've got the big long stems. When do I prune them? You really don't have to prune them at all. And the new newest growth is what is going to uh, make your raspberries. Now, when they start producing, and hopefully they will. Um, it's just there's not much of anything much better than raspberry, but they do not like our Texas heat. That's why they are so seldom grown well. But this being a milder summer, we're going to keep our fingers crossed for next year getting some berries for you. Now, once they do produce, they're much like blackberries in that you will prune out the canes that have formed berries. But at this point, uh, since they are not blooming, since they are not producing, I just let them make a, you know, a nice big bush and hopefully when they do produce, It'll be enough to uh, really have enough to enjoy for a while. But uh, if it's if they're uh, 
canes are in the way and most of them are pretty thorny. Uh, you can prune them any time you like, but you're just you're reducing the potential for berry production next spring. So I would tend to only prune where they're just absolutely in the way. I don't think you're going to improve okay. the vigor. I don't think you're going to improve the production by pruning. Now, after the after our storm in the winter, the only trees we lost, and we've got a bunch of them, were in the evergreen variety. Mm-hmm. We have lost um, one um, Arizona cypress, and it looks like we're going to lose four more. Um, we had someone come out and look at them. They couldn't find anything wrong with them other than they believed they were stressed. Right. Because we had that inch or half an inch of ice on them for four or five days, mm-hmm. maybe a little longer. During the hot summer months last summer, we had about a half an inch of rain. So I drug the garden hose out there, and I gave them all a little water. They're 10 to 12, 13 feet tall. Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to do that, or I, do I just let them dry out and whatever? Well, you know, all tr- all plants, well, uh, most all plants, need a regular source of water. And, of course, the sandier soil is, the faster your soil drains, the greater is the need for supplemental watering. Now, uh, your Arizona cypress and things like that, given time, tend to form a very deep, very widespread root system so they can withstand more drought than many trees can. But especially when we're when they're first being planted and when we have an exceptionally dry year watering is always going to help them help them grow and any time and hopefully it won't be often but any time we have a hard freeze forecast a plant that has been well watered beforehand has a much better chance of coming through with uh, little to no damage than a dry plant does uh, plants that are dry and if you're in an area that you are really dry and then suddenly really cold uh, that's really hard on them so uh, I know it's difficult sometimes to get water out to a little bit more remote location, and you shouldn't have to do it on a regular basis. Now, if these are right up in your yard and you're counting on them for a privacy screen or a windbreak, you know, I'd be watering them once a month just to get the maximum growth and the densest plants possible. But they are one plant that is used at least across a lot of South Texas as a windbreak as much as a privacy screen, and it's just not practical if, you know, that if that fence row is 500 yards from the house it's uh, has a lot of water to haul but um unfortunately you know being so dry probably is one of the reasons that they came through the freeze so poorly but uh you just do the best you can with them i you know i don't don't really know what else to tell you they uh had they been more watered they probably would have suffered some damage but come back out at this point if they're not showing any growth at the base they're probably not going to yeah i they, he just talked about the the winter and the stress on them. So, right. and and then how often do I fertilize a crepe myrtle? How often do I throw those little beads on the ground and? Well, you, you, it's important to use the right fertilizer, which in my opinion is a naturally slow-release organic fertilizer. Medina makes a good one. Maestro makes a good one. Nature's Creation makes a good one. And as a general rule, I would do them pretty much like the rest of your landscape, which is uh, about four times a year if you're trying to get the maximum growth in flowering. Uh, once or twice a year is what a lot of them get, and they 
you know, they too tend to grow and bloom. But if you're looking for the best of the best, um, do be fertilizing them about. I, I try to do it the first of every season, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Uh, they will get some fertilizer. The other thing that is so important on crepe myrtles, because practically every crepe myrtle sold comes to you planted too deeply in the pot. They wind up planted too deeply in the ground, and they just don't thrive or bloom the way they're capable of blooming. So at some point, do be sure that the soil has been pulled away from the sides of the trunk all the way down to where those major roots, not the little tiny fine roots, but all the way down to where the major roots flare out, and you'll be amazed at what a difference that makes in growth and flowering. Thank you so much. You have a good week. Well, it's always a pleasure, and you do the same, and you call any time we can help. And uh, and good luck on the Italian or on the uh, the Arizona cypress. They, uh, you know, again, they hopefully people always they're asking me what do I replace everything from xylosma to uh, other things with, and I tell them you know the plant you had there was good for thirty years, so it may still be the best plant. You just have to recognize recognize that in texas we're just every now and then every 30 years or so we're going to get some extraordinarily cold weather so there are other options out there but uh again just look real carefully at exactly what your needs are exactly what the water needs are going to be and uh how much your lifestyle is going <laughs> to give you time to work with those plants because jobs and family uh of necessity have to come first so uh anyway just call anytime we can help revise on that sarah it's always a pleasure to talk to you Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Goodbye. All right. Uh, next up is Ray. Good morning, Ray. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Morning, sir. Yes. Um, another hot day down in the valley, but rather have that than a, <laughs> than a hurricane. Yeah, I, I just want a good tropical depression that doesn't cause any uh, wind or, or storm surge, but uh, dumps about 10 inches of rain on me. I'd take that tomorrow. Oh, yes, Definitely. Uh, some uh, a couple of uh, not too, too difficult questions. Uh, one is uh, when is the best time to plant the, or is there a best time to plant the dwarf uh, monkey grass? Uh, best times three years ago, but <laughs> you can plant it 365 days a year. If you plant in the fall, you won't have to do as much watering to get it established, uh, but you can plant it this afternoon. Just remember, it's going to be, especially down in your soil drains pretty well, and you've got plenty of heat, so you're going to have to water a little bit more to get it established than you would if you waited until October, but if you've got the the time and the energy, nothing wrong with planting it this afternoon. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and do that. I I need to replace some that I actually have planted here about uh, well, March of uh, 2020, I think it was a, a year ago. But I yeah. just need to replace some of the ones that didn't make it through the drought, yes, sir. through the pandemic and everything else. Right. Um, right. Also, well, uh, and compost, I know you said before that not to apply in the hot time of the year. Uh, right. Does it make a difference? Is, is that compost uh, landscape mix that they sell? Um, you know, the thing that we don't want, we don't want compost that isn't what we call finished, fully decomposed. And the way you tell, whether it's your top dressing or whether it's just straight compost, just stick your hand down into the pile. If it feels hot, if it feels hotter than air temperature, then it's still breaking down and you wouldn't want to put it on in the summer. If it feels just the same temperature as the dirt does, whether it's compost or the compost sand mix, uh, you can 
put it out. Fully finished compost can be put out 365 days a year, but most of the compost that's sold is not fully finished. So just stick your hand down into that pile, and if it's cool, put it out. If it's warm, uh, wait until it cools off a bit before you spread it. Okay. Uh, also, uh, observation, I guess, um, my, uh, we had some, my wife had some uh, bougainvillea plants that had been there yeah. for a few years, and of course they froze. And when they're coming back up, of course, it's coming, several branches coming back up. Uh, well, um, trunks, I guess, uh, coming back up. And then they, they, they spread into the branches. Well, on, on one of those branches, the, all of a sudden, the stem or the branch, I guess, turned cactus, cactus-like. And it looks like a, a half-inch cactus leaf. And then uh-huh. it started spreading even bougainvillea leaves off of it. <laughs> they do weird things. They also periodically will make what we call a water sprout, and that's a growth that just seems like overnight shoots straight up five or six feet. Uh, anything that is unattractive, uh, just go ahead and prune it out. Those water sprouts are not going to bloom nearly as well, so I tend to prune them out. Your growth there sounds interesting. If it goes ahead and blooms normally, leave it. You're certainly not going to hurt your bougainvilleas to prune them, and I think we're going to be doing more pruning than usual this year just because they are recovering from the freeze, and and they're putting on some pretty odd growth. But uh, um, I would say it's strictly up to you. You're not going to hurt the plant by pruning it, but you're not going to hurt the plant by leaving it. If you want to just leave it and see what it does bloom-wise, that's fine. Oh, Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's all I have. It's always a pleasure, Ray. Thank you for the call. Goodbye. All right. uh, Let's talk for a minute about Wild Birds Unlimited. You know, it's just fun having a place that, you know, you're just driving by and you think, you know, I don't know if I need anything, but I think I'll just run in and see what they're doing today. That's kind of the way Wild Birds Unlimited is for me. And, of course, I can rarely go through their doors without leaving with something because you just find all sorts of things that will beautify your yard. Then if you're a birder, man, you'll find everything you need. The absolute best in feeders, the freshest seed. And they know the birds eat different things at different seasons, so they actually vary their seed mixes according to the season and according to the type of bird you want to attract. They have uh, seed blends that will not be as attractive to the doves or the grackles or other things that you don't want. You can actually be specific about the birds that you want to attract. And most of their feeders come with a lifetime guarantee. It's just uh, just top quality when you go to Wild Birds Unlimited. And they always have beautiful things uh, for your landscape. Uh, They have fountains. They have uh, bird baths. They usually have some beautiful wind chimes. They have some sun catchers, some wonderful just hanging art out of India. You just can't go through the door of Wild Birds Unlimited without finding lots of interesting things. And knowledge, boy, if you want to know about birds, anything about birds, Kyle and his staff, you're just not going to find people that know birds any better. And they love talking about bird feeding and birds and nature in general. Stick your head in. Anytime you're headed out Northwest Military Drive, they're right out there in that shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner. They're open seven days a week to serve you. They will always enjoy visiting with you at Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like we're going to talk to Karen, Amanda, and Scott. Karen's up first. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Thank Good morning. My call this morning. Thank you for calling. Um, thanks. Well, I got I got two questions. One, do you think that uh, you know the cicadas that have been hatching 
are okay for dogs to eat. <laughs> if they weren't, there'd be a lot of dead dogs around. <laughs> I just, I, I, you know, it's just funny. I, I can't think about cicadas without thinking about a dog I saw one time holding a cicada inside its mouth. The cicada was buzzing inside of the dog's mouth, and the dog was trying to pretend it didn't know where the sound was coming from. But, uh, I, you know, it it could create a little bit of tummy upset just from the, oh, those rough, spiny leg-like legs that yeah. they have. But uh, they're, they're not going to be any serious health hazard to your dog. So far as I know, I'll ask Dr. Kirby when he comes in at 11, but uh, I I wouldn't worry about it, but I'd probably let him stay outside for a while after they've eaten the cicadas. Yeah, that's, yeah, Maggie the Pointer has discovered the cicadas, and and she's one of those that puts them in her mouth and then brings them in the house and plays with them in the bed. So. <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I had a lab that used to eat grasshoppers all the time and kind of the same oh. same exact thing, but, uh, oh, there are a lot of stories there, too, but watching a, watching a dog stalk a cicada or a grasshopper, again, puts a, a lot of humor in and owning pets so no but i I, puts life in perspective (laughs) (laughs) so i I wouldn't worry about it i'll just put it that way yeah okay good because she's gotten several okay my my true question for calling is a friend gave me this little bitty orchid uh for a gift um, some time ago okay and i was so I was so proud because all I've done is water it, and it must be in a window that it likes because it's it's growing nicely. It even put out a new spike and had a whole bunch of little bitty orchid blooms on them. Very good. My question is, it's 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 growing the really long um, roots, I guess they are, uh-huh. or arms yes. or whatever they are. The roots. Um, do you just leave those alone, or does it need to be in a bigger pot? I mean, it's still in the same little four-inch pot that it came in. Okay. Um, well, excellent I got, I got question. Growing everywhere. Yeah, excellent question. I started growing orchids when I was in the eighth grade as a science fair project, so uh, I have a, a great love for orchids as well. You have to think about where this plant would be doing if it was in nature. Um, it's almost certainly a Phalaenopsis or Dridenopsis orchid, and it would be on the bark of a tree or maybe on the side of a house or somewhere like that, and it's going to grow its roots absolutely as long as it possibly can because that's how it you know, gets its water, that's how it picks up its nutrients, things like that. It doesn't know it's supposed to be in a pot, and it's not used to growing in the ground. It's what we call an epiphone. So it it does not have to go into a bigger pot. Phalaenopsis, or what we call monopodial, mean that, meaning that they grow upright. Now, there are other types of orchids mm-hmm. that will grow over the side of the pot that need to be repotted into bigger pots with some regularity, but that Phalaenopsis mm-hmm. can, can live for years in a small pot. What the real consideration is is that the medium that it is potted in will tend to break down over time and most of the ones that you're seeing in the the box stores, chain stores, groceries, and even the florist, uh, they are planted in something called the uh, long fiber sphagnum moss. And long term, mm-hmm. that's not the best thing. And be thankful that those roots are outside the pot because a lot of the roots in the pot are ultimately going to rot as that sphagnum starts to break down. At some point, you probably will want to repot it. When you do, you probably will not 
go back with that long fiber sphagnum? You could, but it's harder to maintain. Um, in general, uh, orchids are grown, this type of orchid are grown more in uh, western red fir bark, and um, they have to be watered more often. They want to be fertilized regularly on a long-term basis, but um, they can just get bigger and prettier, and uh, the only danger to them is that they can become highly addictive if you're successful with them. I had three of them as a science fair project. I had 300 of them by the time I got out of high school and 3,000 by the time I got out of college. Fortunately, I had a grandfather with a greenhouse where I went to college, so uh, uh, my <laughs> anyway, uh, they can be highly addictive, but I want you to be as successful as possible. So uh, you will repot it at some point. At that point, I would repot it uh, probably into a clay pot just because it's heavier, will support the plant better. Uh, but those, mm-hmm. you know, those long roots, uh, it's best to leave them alone as best you can. Uh, the personal story is I gave a, one of those phalaenopsis to an aunt of mine at one point. She put it in her kitchen window, and that thing bloomed eight months out of the year for two or three years. And the roots just filled up the windowsill, and one day her domestic helper decided that she would do her a favor and when she got home uh, the lady told her I just did you the biggest favor I cleaned that plant up and it looks so much nicer now and she cut 80% of the roots away and the plant didn't bloom again for two years so you want to yeah you want to let those roots go and do uh, their thing as far as possible Um, some people will actually, you know, if you're really serious about this and build a greenhouse or something like that, some people will actually grow them like in an open teak wood hanging basket and just let the roots, uh, I've got some other similar orchids that the roots are probably, you know, hanging five feet straight down from the plant. So um, if you really get into this, there are many other ways to grow them. But long answer to short question, just let those roots grow and do what the roots want to do and um, repot at some point and I, I do have to tell you that um, because I'm tempted just like everybody else and I sometimes see something in the grocery store that I just really want for a part of the collection I'm finding that mm-hmm. some of these plants most of them are coming out of Taiwan some of them don't take the hot Texas summer very well so um, probably oh. 80% of them are things that you can count on growing for you for 10 or 20 years if you take care of them. But every now and then you'll get one that just has genes from a cooler climate where its uh, ancestors came from. So don't judge yourself mm-hmm. too harshly if they have trouble in the hot, hot summer. But uh, you're doing well, and you can continue to do well for a long time with it. But just uh, keep the repotting to a minimum and try to let those roots grow as much as they possibly can. Well, I'm glad to know I can put it in a hanging basket because that would yeah. be ideal for it in the in the window that it really really likes. So yeah. that would be the perfect solution. And you do you repot it um, at that point to put it in the hanging basket. You certainly you certainly you do. Yeah, okay. and and in a hanging basket, it doesn't need to be a clay pot. Uh, a hanging basket be a plastic basket or it could be a wire basket. Whatever whatever works most easily for you. But um, just be aware you're going to be watering it more frequently, although you can just use a little mister rather than having to take that basket down every time it needs water. You can just, as long as you do it carefully and thoroughly, you can just actually miss those roots just as a cloud forest would do for that plant if it were out of nature somewhere. Oh, okay. 
Well, that's cool. Well, super. Yeah. Watch they, out. They could, they could be. I've looked at other ones, and there's some really pretty ones out there, and I thought, no, <laughs> don't do Watch it. out. You're on the road to addiction. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, I thank you so very much because I am kind of proud of it. I. You know, it's it's growing roots all over the place. So, cool. Well, Thank you, you so just keep up the good work, and don't forget to fertilize it periodically. Uh, I alternate between I alternate between has to grow plant and another Benita product they call their liquid fish blend, and uh, either one of those will work separately. But I alternate, you know, one and the other, and the results have been just outstanding. Do you spray that on the plant because of the root? Mine, or mine are mostly in pots. Yeah, mine are mostly okay. in pots that get drenched. The ones that are hanging, you know, and of course this is in my home greenhouse, so I don't have to worry about getting the kitchen wet. So I'm just watering with a hose, and I'm watering up for the ones in the basket and down for the ones in the pots. Okay. Okay, cool. Super. I appreciate it so much. I appreciate you. Have a great Sunday. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Bob. Goodbye. You too. <laughs> Bye. Give up. All right, let's talk for a moment about Rhonda's Nature's Way. I'll be over there tomorrow. I'm running low on some of the special things I buy from Rhonda on a regular basis. And, you know, I just have to say there's nothing in life more important than your good health. And your good health depends on what you consume and how much attention you pay to what you're eating. Most of us do better with a little bit of supplementation. Uh, and I think, you know, the vitamins, the supplements that you get at Rhonda's are going to be so superior to anything you're likely to find on the grocery store shelves or the shelves of a chain pharmacy. And she has so many things. It can solve so many problems problems, digestive issues, even pain issues. There's a new curcumin product that she carries called Curamed, as a matter of fact, that just, uh, I've, you know, had several people gotten to try it who suffer from severe arthritis pains or joint issues or just achy muscles or whatever, and the great majority of them come back and say, wow, this stuff really works. It's just like a super absorptive form of uh, turmeric, but uh, bottom line, I, you know, I could spend an hour just telling you about all the different good things Rhonda has there. She's got the uh, the comfrey and already in what they call a comfrey trauma cream. And boy, that's wonderful for stings and bites and fire ants and things like that. Uh, she's got some delicious diet aids as well. You know, a lot of us decide we need to cut back on things and lose a little bit of weight, but it's hard to give up that, that little bit of sweet. Hey, check out the dark chocolate bars uh, sweetened with monk fruit. Check out the smart cakes. I was talking about those yesterday, cupcakes, where they are absolutely delicious but the two cupcakes together i think 38 calories zero starch zero sugars five grams of uh uh of uh, let's see it's four grams of protein and five grams of fiber it's just Rhonda's nature's way is a fun place to visit and she and her staff are so knowledgeable closed today closed every sunday but open the other six days south side store on southwest military north side store at the center at the of the corner of i-10 and callahan that's Rhonda's nature's way South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. My first three callers are going to be Amanda Scott and Yolanda. And let's just get back to those phone lines. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm off to a good start. How about you today? Doing wonderful, thanks. Okay, so Great. I have two, um, I, I'm guessing they're Italian cypress trees. I just moved into a new-to-me house about uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, Congratulations. Italian cypress, thank you. 
two Italian cypress trees, that's what I'm assuming. They're both about 15 feet tall. Um, they were looking beautiful. I didn't do anything to them, and then COVID hit. Um, and after that, the the bottom probably probably seven feet of the of the Italian cypress just was mm-hmm. brown. Um, yep. A couple of months later, I started seeing green shoots at the the tips of the of each. Uh, not every branch, but some of the branches. Um, I'm right. starting, starting to see a, a few more, but a lot of patches don't have any green at all. So I just don't mm-hmm. know what I should do. Well, there's a product I like called Chainsaw. <laughs> and I hate to say oh, that, no. but uh, no, Italian... you got to reverse that. Don't, no, nope, I didn't hear that. Say that again. Okay. It's, it's just, Italian cypress have a lot of problems in this area. They start out absolutely beautiful. Typically, you will love them for the first two, three, maybe even four years they're in the ground. But even without... You know, the severe February freeze, They, as they age, they become very, very susceptible to red spider mite, to diplodia twig dieback, to a number of different things. And you'll end up, you know, with exactly what you're talking about. You will have beautiful new growth coming out toward the tips of the branches, and the rest of the tree is just going to look horrible. And... uh <laughs> I, uh, oh, I, you know, I, I, I used to love. Don't do anything, it's going to be fine. Well, I wish I could, but I try to tell the truth. I, I you know, I have to I say know. that I, I used to really love those trees because uh, Greg Popovich is uh, a regular around the nursery, and and he planted Italian cypress when he lived in the vineyard around his Italian style home, and he would always call, "Come tell me what's wrong with my Italian cypress," and there was always some Spurs tickets involved, you know along with it but uh it it's just uh, you can spend a fortune trying to keep those things attractive and uh it it just i mean move to tuscany if you have to have italian cypress or a different part of the country they're simply a not a good choice for san antonio i hate to tell you that um if you just for the year i had them so yeah and if you want to replant them you can enjoy them for probably up to five years but then the problems are going to start all over again so uh if you just if your home just demanded the tuscany look you just and this sounds ridiculous, but it's true. You just plant them every five years, then get rid of them and plant some more of them because yeah, they do not yeah, do not well. age well. Yeah. Okay. So Sorry about that. Since, okay. Since I'm going to be cutting those down, um, my mom lo- knows I love figs, but they're just so expensive in the store. And I mm-hmm. do figs grow well here. Figs grow the beautifully figs grow well. here. Big okay. fig trees so what, what will. Kind of, what kind of? Because um, this. I have some some trees on this side of my house, some um, oak trees, so it gets mm-hmm. a decent amount of shade. Okay. Um, well, you'll need to. Do okay. No, you'll need to get them in as much sun as possible. They'll grow beautifully in the shade, but they won't produce very well. I And, you know, my biggest fig, which is probably 100 years old, uh, who knows how long it's been out there, is kind of, oh, one next to one of my outbuildings, and it's partly shaded by a big oak tree, and the part that's in the sun produces dozens of figs. The part that's in the shade produces almost none. So get okay. your fig in as, as much sun as possible. Now, their growth habit is pretty much the opposite of Italian cypress. Italian cypress grows up 
fig trees spread out. And if you have room, uh, you'll never buy a fig again. I mean, you can get some of them that produce practically throughout the growing season. And uh, in large numbers, you may fight the birds for them a bit. But, uh, um, yeah, the figs do extremely well. They, they want as much sun as you can give them. They want very regular water. If you don't have room to do that, there's actually a little, it's hardly even a dwarf. I'd almost call it a miniature fig called Little Miss Figgy. And uh, okay. it's a very compact fig. It makes a very delicious but small fruit. But if you have room for it to grow, the old Texas Everbearing, the Celeste, Alma, uh, those are all wonderful figs. There is a, a white fig called white cadota, which, uh, is almost, uh, you know, it's not that usual golden brown color, but also a delicious fig. There, there are probably 12, 15 different varieties of figs. Probably the single two best ones uh, are going to be Alma, A-L-M-A, and Celeste, also sometimes sold as Celestial. But uh, they're going to spread out. They're going to want to make a plant that's 10 feet tall and 15 feet wide. So be sure you have room for them to grow. But uh, uh, you and your family can enjoy delicious figs uh, pretty much all summer long. Wonderful. Okay, well, not the best news, but maybe I'll have some figs in a few years. So. Uh, you'll have figs next year. If you, you plant now, you'll have a bumper crop next year. Assuming we don't have, you know, the kind of winter we had last year, which is very, very unusual, but, uh, my figs are already five feet tall again after that. And I live in the hill country where we got, uh, you know, about four degrees, but my figs are back looking beautiful and even have a few figs on them. So, uh, I think they'll, I think they will please you and take your mind off your Italian cypress. <laughs> You're welcome, Amanda. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. All right. Next up is Scott. Good morning, Scott. Morning. Good morning, Um, sir. I have a question. My brother and I and my uncle and my cousin have tried to propagate his uh, Carolina Sapphire for three years now. Carolina, Carolina Buckthorn? Sapphire. I never heard of Carolina Sapphire. Describe it to me. Uh, like Arizona Cypress. Okay. Sort of blue. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, unfortunately, the conifers don't are not real easy to propagate. You should be able to propagate it from cuttings. October, November are going to be your best month to take the cuttings. Uh, you can root them either in coarse sand or in perlite. But um, the colder months of the year... And, and when you take those cuttings, you'll, you'll want to keep them chilly. You'll try to protect them from freezing. But normally the cuttings are taken, uh, uh, October, November, and they're normally rooted out by February or March. And, um, it, it sounds like it's closely akin to an arborvita. And, uh, gosh, I, my, my first job out of college was, uh, as a propagating supervisor with about two million plants to look after. And, uh, we propagated again. I don't, I don't know one by that name, but, uh, things that sound very similar to it. And we didn't get a hundred percent. We probably got 60, 70 percent of the cuttings would root. But the time of the year is very important, uh, when you take those cuttings. Okay. So October, November, how big of a cutting? Uh, three inches, four inches, no more than that. And strip the, uh, you know, the foliage off about the lower inch. 
Um, we rooted mostly in perlite and occasionally in coarse sand. Um, you want to, you know, keep your rooting medium moist at all times, uh, which generally means watering every two or three days. Keep them out of direct sun and, uh, but in an area where, you know, they get, uh, at bright filtered light. Um, again, we did it in cold frames to increase the humidity, but, uh, important thing is just, you know, good light. You know, keep keep the rooting medium constantly moist. Uh, when you take your cuttings, you'll have a higher percentage of them root if you will take and soak those cuttings for oh thirty minutes or so in a mixture of garret juice and liquid seaweed and water. Uh, that seems to really help with uh, getting the cuttings to uh, to take root. And again, don't take your cuttings too big. The four inches maximum, probably three inches, going to be even better. All right. Do we strip the bottom? I guess you yeah. call them leaves. Uh, yeah, about off like about an inch. Yeah, play. two two yeah. thirds with the foliage on it, one third with nothing but stem. All right. And while we're on propagation, um, I'm repotting a money tree for someone at work. Okay. Uh, how easy are those to propagate by cutting? And this is the woody one with has the kind of a five-fingered leaf on it. There are two or three things yeah. called money trees. Okay. Uh, yeah, fast-growing. You know, if you that's one plant that you can be 100% successful by doing what we call an air layer. And that is, uh, you know, on one of the or more of the branches, what you do, and in this case you can, you know, you can leave eight or ten inches of foliage even up above it. But you take and just slice, carefully slice the bark off one side of the stem for about three inches up and down the stem. You take long-fibered sphagnum moss, which is, you know, what is often used to line hanging baskets and things, mm-hmm. moisten a big handful of it, wrap it around that spot where that you've wounded the side of the trunk, and then wrap that up either with aluminum foil or with uh, just plastic wrap or something like that purpose of this of course is to hold the moisture keep the sphagnum moist i use aluminum foil simply because it's easy just to crimp the top and bottom and it makes quick and easy to do some people like to use uh, plastic wrap because they can actually see the roots developing and it takes in the summer months it'll take four to six weeks Winter months, it takes somewhat longer, so do, do this as soon as you can while the weather's still warm. But what you're doing is, in effect, creating a pre-rooted cutting where you've sliced the stem, where you've put the moist uh, sphagnum around it. Uh, the plant's little plant brain says, gee, I broke, I fell off, I'm on the ground, I better grow some new roots. So after the appropriate period of time, and you can peel the foil back and look periodically if you want to, but normally four to six weeks, you'll find that the, that the plant has put out a lot of roots into that sphagnum, then you simply cut it off below that point peel your plastic or, or uh, aluminum foil away, and you've got a pre-rooted cutting, so 100% of the time you'll be successful with it. The money tree will just branch. We'll put on more branches down below that point, and, um, you know, mama plant's happy, and you've got a new cutting that, uh, that'll that grow just like the parent plant did. All right. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Appreciate the call. Thank you, Scott. All right, better get a break out of the way here, Don. Let's run that recorded stuff and get back and talk to Yolanda. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. 
All right, back to gardening and to the phone lines. going to be Yolanda, Glenn, and Steve. Yolanda is first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? Hi, it's a nice day out there, and uh, everything's going well so far. How about you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Been listening to you, and you're so full of such good gardening information. So I <laughs> I've made sure I've made every every mistake you can make in the gardening world. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep you from uh, making oh. the same ones over again. Oh, thank you, Bob. Two questions for you today, and uh, okay. I have uh, two crepe myrtles that I planted, uh, and it's uh, red rocket. And yes, uh huh. Several years ago, maybe 10, and so uh, they did really well, and they got about, I don't know, 8, 10 feet high. But uh-huh. the problem is that uh, they're opposite of our uh, deck. And okay. so when they're flowering, I get all these flowers on my deck, and it's just making a huge <laughs> mess. I think you know the problem. I, you know, the only thing worse than a deck covered with flowers is a swimming pool full of flowers that the pool skimmer can't keep up with. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's that's the downside of a, a plant that has lots of little flowers on it. And, uh, I, you know, it's just something if you want the crepe myrtles, uh, you're going to have to put up with the flowers. And uh, it's just like if you got a kitty cat, you're going to have to change the litter box periodically. <laughs> it just comes yes, with the yes. with the plant. Um, I, again, you can if you if you wanted to, you could of course just prune them heavily. But um, we grow crepe myrtles for the flowers. The foliage, uh, Red Rocket has you know a nice foliage, but that's not what we're growing it for. So uh, right. um, I I personally I have uh, one of the steel lithium-ion battery-powered blowers. Uh, I have so many things accumulate on my porch that it would take all day to sweep, it seems like, and it takes, you know, instead about 30 seconds to make it around all three sides of the house. But um, it's just it's just uh, time of year that they're in bloom. You're just going to sweep or, sweep or blow regularly, and uh, it's just part mm-hmm. of having crepe myrtles. Yep. Oh, my goodness. They bloom like... I don't know, six, seven months. I mean, they're just so healthy. <laughs> well, move them? Uh, after 10 years, probably not. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you could. It would be a massive root ball that would weigh two, three hundred pounds. Uh, you would almost certainly have to have, um, you know, mechanical assistance to dig it and move it. Uh, you could pay someone to do it, and if these plants had great sentimental value, it might be worth it to you. But um, I, it's it, again, you'll spend a thousand dollars just to save a hundred dollar plant. Right. Yes. Well, you know, that's uh, good to know. Thought. Yes, maybe yes, maybe yes. maybe you should move the deck. <laughs> That'd be easier. <laughs> I think it might be easier if you had an appropriate place to have it. But no, it's right. you know, crepe myrtles are messy, bougainvilleas are messy, uh, you know, golden rain trees are messy. But it's just it's just the trade off to have the flowers. You uh, um, you're just gonna have you're just gonna have a lot of blooms come down. We've got a couple of big crepe myrtles in our bedding plant area here at the nursery, and uh, it's just a solid pink carpet out there for several weeks every summer. So uh, um, there's there, there's no been no birth control discovered for crepe myrtles to keep them from blooming. <laughs> well, I guess best bet would have been plant them out, you know, in the yep. in the yard. 
Exactly. And there are, if you, you know, if you want to have beautiful crepe myrtles there, you can always replace Red Rocket with one of the, uh, more compact varieties. You can plant Pocomoke that only gets about four feet tall and has absolutely beautiful, they'll be, you know, lighter colored flowers, not quite as rich red as Red Rocket, but there are plenty mm-hmm. of dwarf grape myrtles that don't grow over six feet tall and consequently, uh, shed a lot fewer blooms, but, um, uh, it's just you know, it's it's just the landscape. You make you make your decisions, and everybody makes some mistakes that have to be corrected right. after a while. And uh, I can think of a lot worse things to have to correct. Right. Well, I guess, uh, like you said, I'll keep them trimmed and then um, see how long you know they like that. And at yep. some point in time, you know, if they start getting diseased or whatever, then I'll have to cut them out. Well, if you've exposed the root flare on them, they could live a hundred years. But, uh, again, you can prune them very severely. You can cut them down to, you know, three feet tall in early spring. Uh, there's a good restaurant right up the street from our nursery and they have the Basham's Party Pink that grow 35 feet tall. And every year they cut theirs down to about five feet. They come out nicely. They bloom beautifully. They're not as pretty as they originally were, but you can prune mm-hmm. those things pretty severely if you just like right. the color and, uh, don't mind sacrificing a little bit of, uh, shape of the plant to just, uh, get it down to where the blooms are more manageable. That's good to know. Thank you for that. Yes, in fact, uh, I think that's what I'm going to do because I don't want to dig them up, and uh, I just can't afford it. <laughs> I understand. My other question is, uh, a lot of growth, ground cover in particular, uh, uh-huh. growing in our grass. Is there any type of uh, spray or solution that we could put in the grass to take out the ground cover? What what kind of uh, ground cover is it? What does it look like? Uh, it's a little little yellow, itty bitty flowers. Yeah, it's it's little yellow flowers. It's an oxalis. It's actually telling you that your soil is very hard because it and clovers like it will grow in soil that's too hard for grass to do well. What is your basic grass? St. Augustine, Bermuda, what kind of, of grass do you have? Uh, Bermuda. Okay. If you will fertilize a little more often, if you will use either molasses or better still, Medina Agriculture has a product they call Medina Plus, um, your, your Bermuda will totally choke it out. Uh, especially, it needs to be a sunny area. Bermuda needs full sun. But, uh, oh, Bermuda, yeah. yeah, Bermuda will, will choke out oxalis. And, uh, as the soil softens, you know, and, and stay always with an organic fertilizer. Chemical synthetic fertilizers lead to harder soil, which leads to more weed problems. Uh, just stay organic with your fertilizers. Use a little of the Medina Plus, uh, it's, they call it, it's a soil activator. It works to soften the soil. But feed that Bermuda three or four times a year it will totally choke that oxalis out and uh, give you a beautiful lawn uh, that male background uh, or that male voice I hear in the background may have to mow a little bit more often but you'll have a lot fewer weeds to deal with so how often do you water the Bermuda grass weekly weekly once a week is plenty even in the hot summer once a week and for how long and long enough to put down an inch of water 
Uh, for most systems, that's going to be about an hour, but what you need to do is put some little straight-sided dishes or cat food cans or whatever out. Time how long it takes to run an inch of water into that dish, and that's how long mm-hmm. you need to leave your sprinkler running when it runs. Okay, okay, that's really good to know. Well, Bob, I think you've answered my uh, most urgent uh gardening questions for today and i appreciate it i've called you in the past and you've always helped me so i appreciate well it's that. always a pleasure yolanda you guys have a great sunday and uh, we'll talk again you too thank you. bob have a good one <laughs> bye-bye thank you bye all right next up is glenn good morning glenn bob good morning how are you i'm off to a good start how about yourself i'm i'm fine i've done my penance out in the garden this morning <laughs> all right um, the first one uh, is about okra. Um, okay. I've probably got about 25 plants, and there's a couple of them that are getting tall enough where it's it's hard to reach up there and pick the okra coming coming out at the top. Yes, and sir. A couple of them, you know, the side the side limbs, I guess, are are making blooms too. But mm-hmm. if if I top that okra, will it encourage more blooms on those other? No, no. Un- unfortunately, you know, if if this was June, um, yes, you could do that. But uh, this late in the season, your okra is going to start shedding leaves here pretty shortly. Just okra doesn't like it warm. Okra uh, likes it hot. And uh, by September, your okra is kind of going to be starting to diminish a bit. So this late, you wouldn't accomplish anything except uh, just reduce your your pickings, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I you. Usually my okra just, I'll end up standing there, I'll have to bend it over, you know, to pick the, the pods off the top, and every now and then you break one when you're doing that, but just, you know, wear gloves because it's kind of spiny, but um, it is important that you continue to pick. As long as you continue to pick, you will get the new tender pods that are so wonderful, and uh, even after your okra has dropped 90% of its leaves, you'll still get, you'll get fewer okra to eat but it will continue but just expect any time now you're going to start seeing the okra drop more leaves than it's putting on but just keep picking those taller ones uh short of a step ladder you can just kind of you know bend them over a little bit or find somebody a little bit taller to help you with them but cutting them back would would not accomplish anything at this point okay well i appreciate that and i do have a ladder out there that i can and and be be aware of the varieties of okra you're planting most of them will get you know at least shoulder high but there's one of them out there that is commonly sold as beck's big okra it's one that uh, malcolm beck you know propagated and spread the seed around widely and that stuff gets 10 12 feet tall so uh try to grow one of the more compact varieties like a velvet green pot or even clemson spineless and uh rarely will they get over six feet tall okay all right my other question uh we had a conversation a couple of months ago about uh my fig and and planting it out where the washing machine drained and it got the water right. from that Right. And it came out like gangbusters, but then all of a sudden it, it died. I mean, it's gone. And I don't know if, if that, you know, I remember you talking about the freeze had different effects on different stuff. But, yeah. you know, there were there were probably 15 or 20 little new little shoots coming out. And it was it was going good. It was about two feet high. And then all of a sudden it was all over with. Uh, well, 
I, you know, it could have been freeze damage, but that's also what happens, uh, uh, you know, if, if any bad stuff comes out with the washing machine water, like Clorox bleach, or it's possible even for something to stay too wet as a small plant, uh, you know, figs or anything else can't get rid of the moisture fast enough. And if this is a spot that just stayed too soggy wet, I mean, a, a plant that was six feet tall and six feet wide, it can handle a lot more moisture because it's transpiring a lot more out through the leaves. But it could also be that, uh, that it just stayed too wet while it was trying to recover. But hey, figs are available and, um, uh, Sounds like if you love figs, a new vigorous plant just a little ways further away from where the washing machine uh, water goes. That, that's what I'm thinking. And, and what can you recommend for up here a little bit south of Blanco and north of 46? I think, um, you know, uh, old Joe Tokini in Seguin used to tell me the most productive fig in the world was one he called white everbearing. Um, I like Celeste, or sometimes sold as Celestial. Uh, Alma, A-L-M-A, is also, all of those are good varieties. Okay. Just the ones to stay away from are some of the Louisiana figs, the LSU purple. And uh, the Louisiana figs are just not as cold-hardy. You will have a lot more freeze damage on those. But uh, Texas Everbearing, Alma, Celeste, uh, uh, those are all going to do well for you. Okay. When I when we lived in Encino Park, uh, my neighbor had a brown turkey, and it just yeah. it was very, very proliferous. So, Oh, yeah, and that's... That's a common, that's one of the other names given to the Texas Everbearing, uh, brown turkey and Texas Everbearing, pretty much the same thing. So, um, uh, yeah, it is an outstanding fig. It's a good size fig and mine at least, uh, produces, you know, six months out of the year. It's not like, not like other things. You get one crop and then you wait a while for more. It just, as long as you keep it watered and fertilized, it keeps making figs. All right. Well, very good. I'll I'll try one of those other ones, and we'll see where it takes us. I appreciate the information. Let me ask you one more question, Glenn. Have you ever had a problem? Sometimes you'll get a little fruit weevil that gets down in that open end of the fig. Has ever that ever been an issue in your area for you? Uh, Bob, the, the the plant. You know, we bought it at uh, at an estate sale a few years uh-huh. ago. Yeah, and it never got to the point. Um, I mean, it might have produced, you know, maybe half a dozen figs, so we never really oh. got, to, got to know oh, that. Yeah. And I think, you know, those were down low enough where the deer and the and the uh, possums or whatever. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you'll be, you'll be better off with the new one. The reason I ask is uh, two of the varieties, and there are many, many varieties of figs, but the Alma and the Celeste, they form a little drop of rosin right where that little opening is in the bottom of right. the fig, and so they don't ever get those little weevils in. Now, I, I don't ever see that problem uh, with my figs. Uh, it's just never been an issue to me. But the reason I ask, if it had been an issue, I'd tell you that Alma and Celeste, those would be your two best choices because uh, they, they call them a closed-end fig, but it's more just that it produces that little drop of rosin that seals off that end where the insects can't get into it. But if it's not an issue then go with texas everbearing or whichever one you want to give a try to sounds good i appreciate it uh, it's my pleasure you get out and have a good sunday and thanks for the call certainly yeah. goodbye all right 
you got to get a break in here, and then it'll be Steve's turn. Uh, Don, let's run those commercials and be back with more gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, Steve, Judy, and Ralph from the next three callers. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Hey, I got uh, a row of about 12 xylosmas that uh, got uh, died back after the freeze, and I've been they're about back up to about four feet tall. Yes, sir. And I watch them real close. We have a real problem with cut ants, and I was noticing that on about four of the plants, the terminal 10 inches of the leaves have been chewed away. The stems are still there. Some of them have leaves coming back. The plants otherwise look healthy, and there's no evidence of cut ants. There's no ant trails, no cut leaves, no nothing. But it looks just like cut ants. I'm just trying to figure out what's eating them, because I've looked and looked, and I can't see anything. You know, it it probably would be caterpillars. Uh, they They are the one thing that do most of their damage at night when we don't see them and that would be the first thing that i would be suspicious of go out at night with a flashlight and see if you find um there it's uh usually it's a little kind of a white fuzzy caterpillar and then there's another big black one they call a woolly bear that kind of has uh it's, it's like a dense black hair and orange rings around it those are the two that will frequently get after tender young foliage uh there is a totally safe natural insecticide called bt bacillus thuringiensis you can uh spray now don't spray it widely because you know you don't want to kill all of the uh caterpillars we wouldn't have any butterflies if we did that but uh it, if you mix it up according directions add a little bit of molasses to it uh you spray it stays on the leaf caterpillar comes out takes a bite of the leaf stops feeding immediately and dies within a few hours so uh, that would probably be my guess as to the most likely culprit and they don't really leave I mean, some things like the big tomato hornworms leave uh, kind of pellets behind. You will see their their poop, as it were. But the ones that go after xylosmas and pittosporum and things like that, not much evidence except the leaves are gone. So you might go out and look at night with a flashlight. If you find that it is caterpillars, uh, the uh, the BT, BT worm killer, uh, caterpillar killer, whatever name you buy it under, will be very effective, very very safe for people and pets. Yeah, I have a, a bottle of the liquid, and uh-huh. uh, but you use molasses with it also? If you put a little molasses with it, molasses is a very strong microbial stimulant. Uh, BT is a bacterium, and uh, it just, uh, I old Barney Grimm uh, founded the Greenlight Company. He told me that he figured it made it about 20 times more effective if you had about a teaspoon of molasses per gallon of spray. Okay. Is that pretty typical where they only eat the last, you know, the terminal eight or nine inches and then move to another uh, branch? Well, stop and think about it. Where's the tenderest new growth going to be? Where's the where's the most edible portion of the plant going to be? And that's always going to be those youngest, most tender, succulent leaves. And uh, caterpillars and grasshoppers both, that's where they're always going to target their, their uh, chewing. And if you spray and then it rains, does that, do you have to respray? 
Generally speaking, no. I mean, if we got, uh, you know, a hurricane-style deluge, maybe so, but uh, it doesn't take a lot of the bacteria to control the caterpillar. So uh, as long as it's had a chance to dry on the foliage before we get the rain, I doubt that you would have to respray. Okay. And, and I mean, they won't kill those things. I mean, because some of them are already oh, no. coming back. It just, yeah. They just look ugly. That's exactly right. In some cases, they'll actually make them branch, and uh, you want them to branch a little bit. Periodically, you should probably, you know, take your shears and just cut an inch off the end of the stems coming out to force them to branch out because you don't want them to grow up and be 15 feet tall but then be very bare-legged down at the bottom. So um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I say, it's just unattractive. So feel free to, free to prune off anything that just... Uh, you know, anything that they've just really kind of ravaged. Yeah, I noticed that some of the stems are literally three feet long with just leaves mm-hmm. up and down them, so it's best to cut a few inches off that so a branch. Yeah, yeah, or even just an inch off the top. What you're doing is just removing what we call the terminal bud up at the top of the stem and forcing the little lateral buds to come out from the side. And it will make, you know, your better growers do this. Uh, the nursery suppliers, the ones that are know what they're doing, they'll sacrifice a little bit of growth to get a much fuller plant. And you need to do the same thing now while these things are coming back. You cut them, do they branch right where you cut them, or do they branch all the way down? Is it forcing them to branch all the way down? At the base, everywhere that a leaf comes out from the stem, there is a little, it's called an axillary bud in there that has the potential to make a new stem. How many of them come out will depend on how much sunlight is hitting the plant at that point. Uh, but the first ones that will branch out are going to be the two or three immediately below the point that you've cut. But if it is in good bright light and the plant has adequate nutrition, then uh, it can it can branch much further down the stem. Uh, what you have to, and let me let me just tell you technically what happens because it explains a lot. Uh, you've got a an auxin, you've got a hormone rising directly up through the stem, and where it stops and concentrates, it makes the bud sprout and start to grow. That's why at the end of the winter, spring, as people say, the sap rises, and that auxin goes up, up, up the stem till it gets to the end. Then it stops and concentrates and makes that what's called the apical bud sprout and grow. When you cut it off, now that auxin is rising up. It's starting to accumulate in what's left of the stem, and the buds that are in the immediate vicinity that it is accumulating, those are the ones they're going to sprout and grow so long as they're getting enough sunlight okay and is this a good time to do that there's never a bad time to do it Uh, i don't like doing it uh in the middle of the fall because it takes that new growth some time to harden off and if we prune too late then the new growth doesn't have time to harden off we get a hard freeze and that new tender tissue freezes so through most of the growing season you can do it any time i just would try to get it done probably before the first of october just to be sure that any new growth that comes off has time to harden off before winter okay all right so one teaspoon per gallon of the molasses with the bt yeah one teaspoon per gallon of finished spray you use about an ounce of the bt per gallon and then a teaspoon of molasses in addition very good all right thank you you're certainly welcome thank you for the call 
All right, let's see here. I guess I better get my last break uh, out of the way here. That's the last break of the show, and then we'll finish up with Judy and Ralph. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. If I can make a nickel off of turning in bass, never worry about the price of gas. I'll be wheeling and dealing and sitting there reeling them in. Ah, uh, you know, Mr. Don Cooper Stevens is doing my engineering when we get our fishing song for the last break of the show. And, uh, oh, I tell you, we were both discussing the fact that fishing would very definitely be better than working today. But, unfortunately, that's not an option for us. Hope it is for you. I will finish up the show with Judy and Ralph. And Judy is up first. Good morning, Judy. Hello, sir. Uh, yes, I'm calling about um, lightning hit my 60-year-old oak tree and the neck okay. of the tree. Uh, on the 15th of August, and uh-huh. it, one of the limbs, it blew a big chunk of the, the bark out of the tree, probably two feet by six inches. So I okay. had a tree trimmer come out and remove that uh, branch. And then it rained uh, this Thursday evening, and I noticed Friday morning I had nothing but leaves on the gr- uh, grass. And it looks mm-hmm. like some of the other limbs, the, the foliage is curling up, and falling off will lightning kill a tree it's an interesting question because lightning bolts can vary very widely in the the amount of uh force they have so to speak the amount of amperage in there and there are actually lightning bolts that are powerful enough that will just instantly vaporize the sap and turn a tree to toothpicks there are others that the tree never really shows uh, you know any sign of damage and unfortunately after the event happens there's virtually nothing that we can do now most of the trees survive and come back out without any problem i had lightning hit a hollow tree down on my creek one time and set the inside of the tree on fire and uh, got the fire out and the tree lived for another 10 years before it finally blew over in a storm but at this point we're not going to know probably for three four five months how much damage that that lightning bolt did because it actually kind of burns its way through the tree typically it will leave a stripe down the side of the tree where it's just blown the bark off and then it gets down toward the ground it jumps out of the tree and into the ground and uh you know that 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 strip off the side stops about a foot above the ground so at this point, just continue to do what you normally would with the tree. Just, you know, it's wet enough now. We've hardly had to do any watering. A little fertilizer certainly wouldn't hurt. If you just same thing you put on your grass if you haven't fed in the last six months or so. But it's just going to be a little time, you know, just waiting to see how much 
how much damage it did because it literally it literally destroyed some of the tissue that's just right underneath the bark of the tree. Uh, I would say trees hit by lightning, 95% of them survive and come back without any problem, unless I say, unless they're just uh, exploded by the bolt. So I think there's a good chance that your tree will survive, but you may have some limbs here and there, you know, that, that will just brown out. Now, looking forward, uh, because the old thing about lightning only strikes once is not true. If lightning's uh, hit a place one time, it will probably hit again. I encourage people that have trees that are extremely valuable in the landscape to think about putting lightning rods in the tree. I, I have lightning rods on my home. When I lived in San Antonio, lightning hit the house across the street and started quite a fire in that house's attic. I immediately put lightning rods on my barn and on my house as well. But it is not really very expensive, and a lightning rod will protect a tree just as it does a house. So if you've got a if you've got a tree that's the highest thing around, if you have a huge majestic tree that just absolutely makes your landscape, think about talking to uh, an arborist who can install lightning protection in the tree. Okay, would you suggest that I call David Vaughn just to come out and look at the tree? David's, uh, you know, he's, he's the most knowledgeable arborist I've ever known. I would probably um, call him, you know, call him, but I'm going to think that he's probably going to wait two to four weeks before he would really suggest coming out to look at it because uh, we don't really know how badly the tree is hurt, and there's no way right. to tell other than giving a little bit of time. Yeah, I would I would love for you to call David because I, then I can ask David. The other limbs in that tree, the, the leaves are started to curl and die. Does that mean that that part of the tree is dead probably, those limbs? It means it's damaged. Hopefully it doesn't mean it's dead. Yeah, hopefully they will come back out again. Um, but, you know, it it just takes time for that damage to show up. And it's going to be several weeks before we really know. But call David this afternoon. He's uh, or Maybe he might be fishing. He might even be fishing on my lake this afternoon, as a matter of fact. But uh, call him sometime this week and ask him if he thinks he should look at it and ask him how long he thinks he should wait before he comes out to look at it. Well, I don't have a computer, but the girls in your office gave me a number yesterday, a 788 number. Does that sound right? Uh, give me, let me see here, I'm not, I'm not the fastest in the world here. I don't know if I'm leaving a message at the right number. Okay, David's number is uh, 788-4986, area code 210. He he may be out of town. Yeah, he may be out of town. He worked for Edder Tree Care for many years, and uh-huh. he said when he turned 70, he wanted to fish more and work less. Oh, <laughs> so okay. that's well, what I he started didn't know doing. Did the whole tree was going to die or what? No, I don't think it will, and I hope David's in Idaho fishing, but I hope he gets back in the near future to take a look at your tree and see if he has any other suggestions, and I look forward to hearing what he has to say. Well, thank you very much, sir. You're certainly welcome. Thank you, Judy. Goodbye. All right, let's finish up the show with uh, Ralph. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. I have recently put in a couple of goldfish and koi ponds on my property, and I've got a whole bunch of canna lilies of three different colors. Is there any uh-huh. way I can transfer any of these land canna lilies to become water canna lilies? 
Yeah, most most cannas will do very well, uh, actually, in a, I would have to call it a semi-aquatic situation. You will not put them as deep in the water as you would a water lily or some other things, but you can certainly put your cannas in a pot and set that pot where it's, you know, uh, maybe halfway submerged down in the water, and they will do just fine. But here are a couple of precautions. You want to probably take them either out of the pot they're in or dig them from the ground, wash 100% of the soil away, and then repot them in pure garden dirt. You do not want any compost. You do not want any peat moss. You don't want any large amount of organic material in the soil that's going to be down in the water or it will cause problems. We, you know, even, even potting water lilies, you never use potting soil. You use a, you know, a, a, just a plain old dirt, dirt, so to speak, because, uh, compost or peat moss will rot and will foul the water in your, in your, uh, pond. But if you will okay. dig them, if you will bare root them, if you will plant them, in dirt that you wouldn't think of planting most plants in, uh, they'll do just fine so long as they're getting full sun. Sounds great. And also on, uh, like, the water lilies or uh, lily pads yeah. that are completely submerged in water, how do you feed yeah. those? Um, you, if sometimes you will just lift the pot out and set it down in a pot, you know, with some fertilizer water in it. But generally, if you have fish in the pond, uh, the plants are going to get all the nutrient they need from the extra month the fish leave behind. That sounds great. Very easy, then. Very good. And I'm about out of time here, so good luck with your project. If more questions come up, you know where to find me.